On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Guillaume Bignon about Calvinistic determinism and the challenges and the benefits that arise with this type of understanding of God and the problem of evil. So we talk especially about his book, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, we talk more than just Calvinist determinism. We even talk about uh, analytic philosophy, particularly Reformed analytic philosophy, and if, even if those types exist. So you're really going to want to tune in for this episode. Uh, it's great stuff. Um, I learned a ton, and I really enjoyed it myself. So I think you will too. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners uh, again to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're the podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking, uh, particularly among those who are interested in analytic, Baptist, and confessional theology. And today we have the utter honor to talk with Guillaume Bignon, and I hope I pronounced your name right, Guillaume, but uh, I'm really, really excited to talk with you because... Um, when I first became interested in analytic theology, really, or I guess analytic theology is true, but analytic philosophy in general, um, I was coming from a Reformed background. Well, not a super Reformed background. I guess I became Reformed at one point. But when I'm introduced to this philosophy and I'm reading it and thinking, where are all the Reformed people in analytic philosophy? And I found Paul Helm and then my list ended. <laughs> so when I discovered that, you know, you were doing this from a Reformed perspective, I thought this is a great model and uh, someone that I want to learn from. And so I'm really honored to be able to talk with you today uh, about, I guess, your your most recent book. So before I I give away everything, why don't I let you introduce yourself to our listeners for the, who, who may not be familiar with you or, who, or know who you are? Yes, uh, thank you for having me. This is my pleasure. Um, so my name is Guillaume Bignon. I am obviously French. I grew up in France. Uh, I was an atheist for much of my uh, young adult life. And uh, through a set of circumstantial and providential events, uh, God has decided to make me a Christian. And uh, that involved uh, uh, hitchhiking on the other side of the world and uh, strange meetings and uh, relationship with a former American uh, model and actress and then a strange experience in a church in Paris where I had some sort of a mystical experience trying to flee the church and uh, then meeting the American pastor who was uh, pastoring that church in France uh, who helped me to resolve some of my objections to Christianity and after a while I came to appreciate the truth of the gospel and uh, applied it to my own uh, guilt and found forgiveness in Christ and that made me a Christian and so that's uh, the where I come from in terms of uh, ideological changes. And then uh, shortly after my conversion, I found myself uh, exchanging with some of my friends uh, and family who still didn't believe, uh, trying to tell them that I had not lost my mind, that I was still very much a, a normal person. And that's what I had come to believe was actually reasonable. And I uh, was doing apologetics without really knowing what that was. Uh, but then I really enjoyed doing that. And I started to read material uh, that was relevant to my conversations and found myself only doing this all evenings and all weekends. And I figured if I'm going to be spending all of my time and all of my resources doing these things, I might as well get a degree out of it. And so that's how I ended up applying for seminary, got a master's in New Testament studies, and then followed it up with a PhD in uh, philosophical theology. So yeah, a reluctant convert uh, 
accidental seminarian and then just uh, the uh, analytic philosophy came on top of that simply out of the fact that I was just thinking hard about those questions and I guess when you think hard about something this is philosophy this is what Plantinga calls philosophy thinking hard about stuff so this is that all of that happened somewhat as a hobby and a side uh, sidetrack to my life uh, but during the day I'm actually a computer scientist this is what my studies and what my background was in and so I work uh, for a big financial institution on Wall Street and uh, that's what I do during the day and I do my research uh, and speaking in uh, in the early mornings and evenings and weekends. Well, I think if anything, you're another model on that front because I feel like I have to do the same thing where I'm staying up late at night because uh, that's the only time that I have uh, to do my studies. So it's an encouragement yeah. to find someone else who's doing the same thing. Um, I hear you. This probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when my son decides he doesn't want to sleep until 3 a.m. So, <laughs> but that's forced to study time right there. You're, you're up already. You might as well be reading. Um, that said, uh, I know I mentioned that you, I guess you identify somewhat as a reformed analytic philosopher, which I think I saw on Twitter was apparently a gangster. So <laughs> why don't you explain to me what a, exactly a reformed analytic philosopher is and why there are so few of them? Oh, that's a good question. So what, uh, so reform simply refers to the fact that we uh, affirm a faith very similar to that of the reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and um, that's also more specifically applied to the area of research that I do, which is in the area of free will and with respect to determinism. Um, so I take what I, what I think is the view of the reformers on that uh, big controversial question. So that's for the term reform. And then for analytic philosopher is just uh, that, you know, as I said, philosophy is broadly construed as just thinking hard about things and writing about big questions and trying to find answers and using the best tools of critical thinking to uh, <laughs> maximize the chances of actually getting the right answers. So uh, in that sense, any thinker about those questions could be called a philosopher. Uh, but when you do it on on topics that are a bit more technical than usual and you do it with a very, very heightened sense of uh, carefulness to arguments and reasoning, uh, that makes you properly an analytic philosopher. The analytic piece is simply to describe that brand of philosopher uh, who places the focus on carefulness of rigor of definitions and arguments and making sure we don't commit any fallacies that type of uh, philosophy that uh, that is more prevalent in the Anglo-Saxon world. I mean, I come from France where the word philosopher basically means a public intellectual. And uh, so this is not going to guarantee at all that the, that person is actually um, cognizant of the laws of logic or proper rules of reasoning. But uh, in the Anglo-English speaking world, uh, this is the I would say the better understanding of what a philosopher is, is someone who's just very careful about his reasoning and writes about deep questions. Awesome. So as, as to as, as to why there's so few of us who are philosophers like that and who believe in the reformed faith and the reformed view of free will, I guess I have the funny answer and a bit more of a serious one the funny one would be to simply tell you well that's because narrow is the gate that leads to life and few <laughs> others will find it um, a little bit more of a serious attempt to explain why they're not well there's relatively few of us uh, might be to say that um, 
libertarian free will, which is the indeterministic view of free will, which is the view that uh, I am not affirming. This is the view uh, that would be uh, against a reformed position. Um, libertarian free will then has been found uh, to be pretty central uh, in responses to the atheistic problem of evil. So a lot of the philosophers who engage in philosophy of religion um, at, one point, at one point or another find themselves discussing the issues of the problem of evil and it's been found very important to uh, affirm some sort of libertarianism to answer properly the atheist uh, objection that God would not allow evil if uh, he existed. And um, I suspect that place of prominence of libertarian free will has, mean, has meant that a lot of the philosophers who think about those questions didn't uh, affirm determinism. Uh, but then beyond that, uh, it's, some, it's more of an educated guess. I'm not really a sociologist, so I can't tell you why anybody is or isn't. All I can say is that when I considered the question very carefully, it seemed to me like that the uh, reformed view on free will, that God determines everything that happens, uh, was both consistent with God's existence and goodness. So that in that sense, that wasn't necessary in order to respond to the atheist. And uh, also added bonus, it seemed like it was the view that the Bible presupposes and teaches. So uh, I, as I try to affirm the correct uh, view, the biblical view, it seemed like the philosophical unpacking of that view was the traditional reform determinist compatibilist view of free will. A lot of uh, words in ism and ist, but uh, that's such is the case with philosophy. Thank you for that. So you... Um... What first got you interested in uh, this topic of Calvinistic determinism? Was there a book that you read or a conversation you were having with someone um, that made you really decide this is something I want to spend years of my life uh, <laughs> studying and writing about? Yeah, as my own testimony makes it clear, I'm not the guy who plans a lot. So I, I found myself just backing into those topics uh, and I wouldn't have told you when I started off that I was going to be spending years doing that. Uh, it's just that God has put one uh, one step in front of another. And uh, and then I found myself doing all of that. Um, but yeah, I was interested in the topic first because it's just plain fun. I mean, this is a debate that is a big controversy that animates a lot of uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. And uh, as I started thinking about those big questions, because I was confronted by them to them uh, simply in the face of normal, cordial debate between Christians, uh, as I started thinking a bit deeply about those questions, I saw a couple of important pieces that I figured are helpful to think about the, the topic and that I didn't think people were really addressing. So the more I studied and thought about this, the more it seemed like I had some meaningful things to add to the conversation. And so when it came time to pick a topic for a dissertation and a PhD, one requirement is to have an original contribution to knowledge, which is a bit of a grandiose term to simply say, hey, bring something we haven't heard before. Uh, and it seemed like I had now material on that to, to contribute to those conversations. And then on a more personal front, obviously, uh, with a, a pretty radical conversion experience as I had, uh, it was somewhat clear to me that God reached out and saved me uh, in a way that was very sovereign. And the Reformed view uh, meshed very nicely with that, the thinking that it was not because I was more open to the things of the Spirit. It's not because I was seeking God. I hated religion and all things 
uh, related to that. And it's just that God decided to grab me by the throat and break down all my barriers and make me a Christian. So um, I was interested to defend the kind of God who would do such a thing because it's uh, hit very close to home. Well, so that's kind of, I guess, a perfect segue into to defining like what exactly is Calvinist determinism? Uh, yeah, so I, I use the phrase Calvinist determinism. I actually didn't uh, invent it. I took it from uh, um, uh, David, uh, Daniel Johnson and uh, David Alexander in their recent tome, The uh, Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. Mm. And uh, they simply use that phrase to talk about uh, two ways of unpacking Calvinism. When we typically speak of a Calvinist in the area of free will, uh, we either refer to Calvinist soteriology or Calvinist determinism. And so Calvinist soteriology is, they conceive as somewhat of an affirmation of the so-called five points of Calvinism. It's a set of doctrines about how God saves human being, beings. And uh, Calvinist determinism is more of a philosophical unpacking of the metaphysics of free will um, that would be necessary for a person who is reformed to affirm God's full control, full providential uh, decree of all things uh, along the same lines as, obviously, facetiously, I would say, as the Bible teaches it, but um, along the same lines as, let's say, the Westminster Confession unpacks the biblical teaching, namely that God is the one who decrees everything that happens. So Calvinist determinism is that view that uh, going to to say that God determines the outcome of our free choices, just like he determines every other event in the world. And that means that with respect to free will, um, we're going to say God, uh, given everything that he does at the moment of choice, the human being is necessitated to do one thing and not something else. So the, given all providential activities, the influence of God in our heart, uh, our state of mind at the moment of choice, all the influencers, all the circumstances that uh, drive us to pick one way or the other. Given all those things, if determinism is true, there's only one choice that we can make, and that is the one that we will make. So that's a, a rough sketch of what determinism is. And when I speak of Calvinist determinism, is simply to say that this is the view that I take the reformers to have had. And this is the view that's commonly called Calvinism. Okay. So I'm curious, alongside this Calvinist determinism, um, I know in your book, you, I think you mentioned something about avoiding the word cause. And, and I'm curious why you do that, because it does seem at least... Uh, a lot of more, at least, Reformed theologians have no problem using the word cause. So is there a reason that you decide that's the one that you want to avoid? Yeah, I would not blame someone who decides to use it if they are clear about what they mean by it. Uh, and that's a helpful word um, to describe those concepts. That's fine. I decided not to use it because I found it to be very changing from one philosopher to another. The concept mm. of causation is very complex. Uh, you have this uh, Aristotelian uh, four causes, right? The material cause, the final cause, the efficient cause. Um, those different uh, distinctions in the concept of cause uh, would need to be clarified before we can use it helpfully to describe determinism. And uh, there's even folks who would say that you could talk about God causing all things without determining all things. So if the word cause is not going to help me identify uniquely the deterministic view, which is the one I'm trying to pin down, 
it seemed like I needed I didn't need to do all that heavy lifting of clarifying what we mean by cause so that I can use that word. So that's that's the only thing. I really take what uh, Peter Van Inwegen uh, said on the, the issue of causation. He says it's a morass in which I refuse to go unless uh, unless I am pushed in. So here again, I, and, and that's the upside, right? So the, I don't think I am pushed in because I think we can very helpfully define what determinism is and engage in all the right debates without having to use that word. So I don't feel the need to go there. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for that. So obviously this discussion of determinism, um, another buzzword that's going to come up is free will. And um, different philosophers and different theologians have different definitions of what free will actually is. So number one, can you give us your definition of free will? And then how does that relate to whether Calvinists should affirm it or uh, deny whether uh, humans actually have free will? Yeah, that's a good question because depending on how you define it, uh, reformed philosophers might be inclined to affirm it or deny it. So uh, I affirming, I, I personally affirm it uh, in the sense that is typically employed in conversations on free will in the philosophical literature. And usually you will find something like this, that free will is the control condition for moral responsibility. So it's simply saying that uh, having free will uh, is satisfying a set of conditions uh, that are necessary for more responsibility, for somebody to be blameworthy or praiseworthy, which is what we typically mean by more responsibility, they need to meet a certain number of conditions. Um, not all of those conditions are about controlling your choice, but some of those conditions are, and these are the ones that will say, if you meet those, you have free will. So it's a way of saying for someone to be blameworthy or praiseworthy, you need to be suitably in control of the choices that you make. Um, and then additionally, there's going to be some conditions like uh, epistemological conditions. So you need to know know some of the relevant facts about the choice that you're about to make. So let's say if I'm pouring sugar in my wife's coffee, but unbeknownst to me, the sugar has been replaced by poison. I'm technically killing my wife, but I'm not blameworthy because I did not have knowledge of some relevant facts about my action. So I'm not morally responsible here, but it's not because I'm not controlling what I'm doing, it's because I just didn't know. So there are epistemic conditions for moral responsibility, and there are control conditions, namely I need to be suitably in control of what I'm choosing to do, and this is what we call free will. So in that sense, uh, the reformed philosopher is uh, fine to affirm free will like that, because typically uh, Calvinists will say, yes, God decrees what we do, he determines the outcome of our choices, but we are nevertheless morally responsible for them. We are blameworthy or praiseworthy for our choices, and so that entails that we affirm uh, that regular free choices, normal choices that are making us suitable for moral responsibility match or they meet all the conditions that are necessary and jointly sufficient for moral responsibility. So uh, we would say that we have free will, we are morally responsible most of the time, uh, well, at least on the normal cases of free choices. And that means we have free will. Now, on the other sense, uh, when we speak of free will, less in the context of philosophical conversations, but more in theological circles, maybe, um, this might be uh, perceived as saying something nice about our, about our ability to do what's right. 
And uh, that's why uh, folks like Martin Luther get really um, agitated against this phrase. And, you know, in his uh, book, The Bondage of the Will, he attacks the idea of free will from beginning to end. Uh, because for him, it's, it's more of a description of, well, I can do what's right. Um, and in that sense, yeah, there's a very strong stream of biblical teaching that says that uh, the natural man cannot do right. And so it's more of a, an inability than, than an ability. Uh, but it's just a different use of the phrase. So uh, from Martin Luther's writings, it seems clear that he's affirming the reformed view of free will, that we are determined, and yet we are blameworthy or praiseworthy. So if put to, if uh, presented with the modern philosophical definition of free will, I think he would agree we have it. It's just that he blasts the phrase because he takes it to be more of a positive description of an ability to do right, which he says we don't have. Okay, that's really helpful because it seems like in my experience, a lot of Reformed theologians seem to be afraid uh, just in general of using the term free will. And I'm not really sure exactly why. I mean, you know, I read examples like Calvin, and he seems to have issues with the term free will in general. Uh, He qualifies it to a significant extent and says you can use it. But for the most part, it seems to say he seems to be saying I'd rather just not use it, um, though I can qualify and use it in this way. And yet you seem to be pretty, pretty happy to use the terminology. Yeah, and, and this is fine. Again, it's going to come down to semantics. The job of the philosopher is to simply say, well, it depends. What do you mean by that? And then we clarify what we mean, and it seems like we reach an understanding. So I, I, I go with the modern philosophical usage of that phrase because I want to engage with the philosophers who speak about free will, and I think that that, disti- that uh, classification is helpful. But I'm fine with the Reformed theologian who's going to tell me I have reservations about that phrase. And then we can just define it differently and use the word differently in that context. This is fine for me. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Now, on the same topic uh, of Calvinistic determinism, I think the the ideas of compatibilism and incompatibilism are really in play here. Uh, And for those who might not be familiar with those terms, could you just give us a quick definition of, of what both of those exactly mean? Yeah, so compatibilism is the thesis that determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. So it's straightforward. We've defined uh, determinism so far. Uh, We've defined free will and moral responsibility. The compatibilist position or compatibilism is the view that uh, determinism and free will are compatible. So self-evidently, this is the view that I've been referring to as Calvinist determinism. It's the view of the Calvinist because the Calvinists are going to say, yes, we are determined and we are more irresponsible. So if both of those things are true, then clearly enough, they must be compatible. So that's compatibilism. Okay. And can you give me what are the main objections to compatibilism? Uh, The main, I guess, theological ones in particular. Yes, uh, I think there's a, a family of objections. I mean, the, the burden of my book, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, is to try to classify and respond to the main objections against the Calvinist deterministic view. Um, the first family of objection is uh, the one that says that if God determines what we do, then we cannot be morally responsible. So that's uh, just the, the de facto thesis of compatibilism. 
Uh, and then there's this uh, other family of objections that says that if God determines what we do, then that inappropriately involves him in the evil that we do. So if he stands behind us and determines us to do something evil, some, something sinful, then somehow that would inappropriately involve him in that, making him either blameworthy or evil or making him bad, basically. Uh, so these are the two families of objections I try to address in my book. I'll just do a quick parenthesis and uh, highlighting that it's somewhat fun that these are the two we find anticipated in Romans 9 by Paul, uh, who, when he's teaching about election and predestination, he says, well, now you will say to me, why does God find fault for who can resist his will? Um, so he's, he's anticipating that someone is going to complain along those lines. And similarly, he's asking the rhetorical question. Now, is there unrighteousness in God? Uh, surely not. So uh, both of those things are somewhat uh, anticipated by Paul. But uh, these are the, the, the main objections with respect to compatibilism, which is what you asked. What are the main arguments against that? Um, there's a whole series of uh, arguments by analogy um, where the uh, incompatibilist is going to say, look, determinism is a little bit like something else that we know removes moral responsibility. And so determinism also removes responsibility in the same way. So that something else uh, varies from the object from objector to objector. There's a number of different situations that are taken to be analogous to determinism. Uh, so some might say that it makes us a little bit like pets uh, or it makes us a little bit like puppets and puppets or pets are not morally responsible. Therefore, we should not be morally responsible if we were determined. Uh, another uh, conjugation of that uh, objection is to say that uh, determinism is a little bit like coercion, like we are going to be coerced into making the choices we do. Uh, so that if we're not morally responsible when we are coerced, then we should not be morally responsible when de we are determined. Uh, similarly, manipulation is another one of those that's taken to be analogous to uh, de determinism and uh, at, at times also mental illness. So I, I tackle all of those in my book, trying to analyze those arguments by analogy. Uh, and sure, obviously, defend the view that determinism is uh, not uh, refuted. Well, the determinism is not relevantly analogous to those situations where moral responsibility is excluded. Now, it seems, at least in my own experience, uh, one of the most common uh, objections, maybe it's a folk objection to some degree, uh, a pop objection. Uh, I, you know, I, I seem to hear it in pretty much all corners of those who oppose this type of understanding uh, of God and, and and action and evil and everything, uh, they say that Calvinism makes us puppets, or maybe it makes us a robot. And I know you mentioned that, uh, the puppet idea, but could you kind of walk me through in detail this particular objection and how you would respond to it? Uh, because it seems, you know, no matter where you go, when you talk about Calvinism, uh, the idea of you becoming a puppet is just everywhere. That's the natural, the common uh, response. So walk me through, if you could, how you would respond to this in a little bit more depth. Um, yeah, so all of those objections, so the, the, the puppets or robots one uh, is, is just one uh, of those many arguments by analogy uh, I've been describing. So it's helpful to respond correctly to... Um, to analyze exactly what is the claim of an argument by analogy. Uh, there's a lot that I've done in that, my book to explain how arguments by analogy work like that. 
And what you find is that there are actually two possible, two neighboring claims that could be made by the objector. Uh, there's a, a stronger claim and then there's a weaker claim. The, um, the weaker claim is simply saying there is a relevant, uh, there's a relevantly analogous property between determinism and uh, yes, being a puppet, for example. So a determined human being and a puppet share a relevant property, and that's the one that makes puppets not morally responsible, and therefore humans that are determined should not be morally responsible. So that's the first weaker claim of an argument by analogy, is to say there exists a relevant similarity. And then there's the bolder claim, which says there are no relevant differences. Um, so between the determined human being and the pet or the puppet, um, there is no relevant difference which would explain why human beings could be morally responsible while uh, puppets are not morally responsible. And so there's a stronger and a weaker claim. And to respond to the weaker claim, the Calvinist determinist is simply going to say, well, look, I disagree. <laughs> you tell me that there is a relevant similarity uh, okay, but which one? What is it? Uh, and more often than not, we're not really told what that relevant similarity is. Uh, it might really boil down to that property being simply that they are determined. Uh, but if that's the case, that's still question begging, right? So the Calvinist is asking, well, give me a reason to think that determinism is a problem here. Um, so that's that's not going to really carry the day. And so that weaker objection ends up being very question begging. Uh, obviously, we want to stay open. Like, okay, maybe you find a good property that I didn't see and show me that it's relevantly analogous and then we'll deal with it. But until we're given what that property is, we, there's not a whole lot more that we can do with the weaker uh, formulation. And then the stronger formulation that says there are no relevant differences, um, now the Calvinist has two things to respond to that one. One, he can also say that it's question begging because once again, the burden of proof is on the shoulders of the incompatibilist here, right? We're talking about a families of arguments aiming to refute compatibilism. So if the argument is aiming to refute compatibilism, then in response, all we have to do is uh, play defense here. Um, so mm -hmm. the burden of proof is on the shoulders of the incompatibilist objector, and if he claims that there are no relevant differences between a determined human and a, pu a puppet or a robot, uh, we are fine to simply say, well, I disagree. I think there are relevant differences. Why don't you prove to me that there are no relevant differences? And here the objector is going to be hard pressed to actually prove that. We're not giving given much more in the literature than this. So. Once again, we can start with, again, the accusation of question begging, but then the Calvinist determinist can go a step further and actually go back on the offensive and now show, look, I'm not going to just say your claim is question begging. I'm going to show you that your claim is false and proven false by offering you just what you ask, namely a relevant property, a relevant difference between Calvinist uh, determinism and being a pet or a puppet. So I'm taking a determined human being who I'm claiming is morally responsible, and I'm saying there's something different in that case from the case of the puppet who is not morally responsible. And so uh, the differences here, uh, they are fairly straightforward. Uh, that would be a property 
of uh, so for example that could be here in the case of the robots or the the puppets um, that would be a property of of puppets or robots that is present in the puppets or the robot that entails that they are not morally responsible and yet that is absent from the normal case of a determined human being well that's fairly easy to find i mean a puppet or a robot is not self-conscious is not it doesn't have self-consciousness and we all agree that uh, being self-conscious, being uh, making conscious choices, is a necessary condition for mm. more responsibility. So, uncontroversially, we have here a property that is present in puppets or robots that excludes their moral responsibility, and yet is not present in human beings because no matter how determined we say they are, they have self-awareness. They are making conscious choices. So we have found a property that is demonstrably relevant to show why one could have uh, moral responsibility and the other lack it. So in that sense, we have now refuted the accusation that there are no relevant properties. So that's two-pronged attack on the stronger claim by analogy is going to be the, the same uh, that you find with whatever the argument by analogy is. It's the same strategy I take when I address the puppets argument, but it's the same I take when uh, speaking of coercion, manipulation, mental illness, all of them really have that same structure. So you end up breaking down the objection in the same way and the responses are very similar. It's just that in each case, you need to go fishing for that relevant property and it's going to be maybe a bit different depending on which condition has been put forward as a defeater. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I like that. Um, a little bit, I guess, I guess I'm maybe it's changing gears a little bit, but I'm thinking Calvinist determinism. Um, I've seen almost completely opposite claims when it comes to Calvinist determinism and its uh, compatibility with classical theism. So I think, I think it's Jerry Walls who has an article on faith and philosophy who basically says, uh, it seems like if anyone wants classical theism, they should deny uh, Calvinist determinism. And yet I've seen others who seem to think that you can't have classical theism without Calvinist determinism. So do you have an opinion on that? Uh, I don't have much of an opinion on that because I'm not too sure that uh, classical uh, theism really, I mean, I, I'm not sure which definition to use for that. I, usually the way I see it employed is that it's more of a collection of different beliefs about God, uh, not all of which I'm, I'm sure, are, I, I don't know if it's referring to certain confessions or um, if it's simply some of the more traditional beliefs about God. Uh, so I, I have seen claims, yes, uh, that if you're a classical theist, you should affirm determinism. And usually that has to do with some degree, some um, definition of aseity, that uh, God exists uh, in himself, that he doesn't take any outside reality, uh, that he's not dependent on, upon an outside reality. And so if, if you articulate your doctrine of aseity like that, uh, you might make it strong enough to say, look, if we have libertarian free will, uh, that means that there is some knowledge that God has of our future free choices that is not coming from his own sovereign decree, but he's somehow taking it from the outside. He's, you know, However you want to unpack that, it seems like there's this piece of knowledge that's coming from the will of undeterminist human beings uh, and not from God's inside decree to bring about everything that happens. Uh, in that sense, yeah, there's this path from classical theism to determinism. But I'm not really 
doing that myself for two reasons. One is I'm not sure that you can secure all of the links in that chain of reasoning from the classical theism to determinism. And second, I don't think that people are necessarily committed to classical theism to begin with in such a way that they would find it too costly to reject and therefore would need to affirm determinism. Uh, so it's not a, an argument route that I employ, but uh, others are welcome to. Well, that's interesting. So I've really and uh, really enjoyed talking with you about all these topics, and I, I know a lot of our listeners have too. So uh, for those who want to follow you uh, in the future, is there a place that they can keep watch on, on the things that you're doing and keep up with the writing uh, and the speaking engagements that you're having? Yeah, sure. If they're uh, uh, courageous enough to actually spell my full name in uh, Google, I mean, they will find plenty of resources. <laughs> uh, that's the G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E for Guillaume and then Bignon, B-I-G-N-O-N. Uh, I have a, a number of lectures on YouTube uh, that uh, deal with those kinds of topics. On Twitter, they can find me under the uh, the name Theology, so like theology, but with U-I instead of Y at the end because that's the beginning of my name, G-U-I. Uh, so on Twitter at Theology. Also, I have a blog uh, on, uh, in which I uh, I write about those sorts of topics, which is Theology, once again, so T-H-E-O-L-O-G-U-I dot blogspot.com in which some of my writings are, are found. Well, that's, that's great. I, I encourage all of our listeners to check out all those resources. Um, I know I've listened to a couple of your lectures and watched a couple of the YouTube videos myself. And I was, I, I really enjoyed them. I especially uh, was encouraged by your testimony of how mm -hmm. the Lord um, worked in your life and, you know, brought you to himself. So um, we're really thankful for the time you've given us uh, for, for the information you shared with us. Those who have been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist professional podcast that at least I know of. Um, and uh, we encourage you to check out uh, Guillaume and all his uh, areas in writing. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.